Hi, my name is Helen Snow, I'm a very grateful member of Alan. First, let me thank the committee, especially T, who has been with me, who met me, and has been there when I needed somebody there, and when I wanted to be alone, she let me be alone, and that's how we had our minds out, and I've appreciated that. The committee for bringing me here, you for being here to listen to me share my story this morning. I've loved coming to this little town. Some of you know I'm Swedish, and that's all that I am. And I didn't know that Lindsborg was going to be that that kind of a little town, so I've had a lot of surprises. I went downtown and shopped yesterday afternoon and spent some money. I enjoyed the Swedish dancers and the Swedish food. And I'm, I'm sure that I am supposed to be right here today. I am going to give you a little background on myself. I'm in Colorado now, but I was born and raised in a little community in southwest Iowa, a little Swedish community between Red Oak and Shenandoah. And I grew up on a farm. I had a very secure home life. We didn't have a lot of money, but neither did anyone else in those days. That was during the Depression that you youngsters hear about. And I, I felt loved. I felt accepted. So for the most part, I felt okay about me. I had some hang-ups, I had some problems, but, you know, that is being a human being. Um, I went to the big city, Omaha, which was just across the river, when I got ready to go to work. And that's where I met my husband, Glenn. That was immediately after the war, and he was just back from the service and he had been a captain in the Air Force and you know wonderful wonderful Glenn so we went together during our courtship we drank together um, in those days apartments and housing was difficult to find and so I had a rooming house where I roomed and again oh my how times have changed in those days the boys that dated you came only to the door and no further <laughs> and so um, we went to nightclubs and drank and talked and I thought this was fine I was doing this so we could be together and so that we could visit you know um, I should also add that I think that Iowa was probably dry at the time I grew up there and that would tell you about how interested I was in alcohol and about what I knew about alcohol nothing absolutely nothing so I was drinking because it was a social thing to do and Glenn and I could be together and had good times had lots of fun went to parties he knew a lot of people he'd grown up in Omaha he'd gone to college in Omaha and he knew a lot of people and we had a lot of fun we were married, and we still continued some drinking, and, but everything was fine as far as I was concerned, as far as he was concerned. And then, uh, when, when the family began to come along, um, and I guess that we really, we who marry alcoholics, many times are really responsible do always what you should and so when the family came along you know I thought this is time for us to grow up and quit all this fun and games we can still party occasionally and do some of these things but when I'm going to have another little life here you know it, it's a whole different ball game for us now and we talked about this and Glenn couldn't understand this you know he, he, he didn't say at that time, you know, yes, I agree, we will. He just didn't understand all that much. And when the baby came, it still was that way. There was one of us that thought we needed to settle down a little and one of us that didn't. 
I still went out with him on Friday nights, but we had moved to Colorado by this time, and I began to notice that when we went out on Friday night, he usually would be drinking on Saturday, too. Then it got to be Sunday, too. You need to remember, I knew nothing about alcoholism. I just could not understand why he was doing this. And then, of course, I did the thing that we do. If I were prettier, if I were this, if I were that, he wouldn't be doing this. You know, it's a lack in me. I did that sometimes, and other times I was angry. Alcoholism is a family disease, and, you know, I developed it pretty rapidly. I had character defects when I went into that marriage. I don't mean to infer that I got them all. I had them. But after the alcoholism began, I didn't get those to grow by accident. I nursed them along because I thought if I would feel self-pity. If he sees how miserable I am, he will do differently. I would try resentment. I would try anger. I tried many different things. I gave a lecture or two in my day. I used to practice for my lectures. As I made the beds in the morning, I would say all the things I was going to say to him when he came home that night. And I went a little further. I gave his response. And then I would say this. <laughs> Trouble with that was I didn't give him a script when he came home at night, and so it never went that way. And I would say a few words... And, you know, he, he could do me in, in a few words, and I was in tears, and there we were. Nothing worked, and yet I kept trying the same things over and over again. And therein is our illness, isn't it? I had an obsession with his alcoholism that was with me from the time I woke up in the morning until the time I went to bed at night, and probably even while I was sleeping an obsession with it. I did other things. I had four little children. I took care of them. I was super wife. I kept the house clean. I kept the kids clean. I have always believed that love is an important thing in the world, and I tried to give them love, and I thought I was giving them love. But it's after I got here that I found that you radiate what you are. And inside I was confusion, and I was anxiety, and I was resentment, and I was self-pity. And some days I was holier than thou, and self-righteous. And this, this is what I was radiating to those little kids. So when we have adult children in Al-Anon as we have today, you know, they need to be there at the time when they were in their first five or six years of life is when I was feeling all this concern and all this anxiety, and that's what I was giving to those little people. Even though I denied those and thought I was giving love, I would be watching for Glenn, and I would tiptoe through the living room as they were watching TV to look out the window and see if he was home from work yet. I tried to shield them and protect them as though I could. You know, they were there. How could I protect them? They were there. They knew whether he was home or whether he wasn't. I qualified for the second step. I did a lot of insane things, and I did them again and again and again, and they never worked, and I don't know why I thought that they would, because, you know, I, I really did quite well in school, and I've got a pretty good mind. But that didn't have a whole lot to do with it not with the disease of alcoholism in the family. Glenn had a period of about three months when he quit drinking completely, and I do not know what the reason was, but I still didn't know about alcoholism, okay? I was happy. All that three months never occurred to me that he would ever drink again, you know, why... Why would he when it's this nice when he's not, you know? Didn't even think about it. 
our family was getting a little larger. He was doing mom's work. He was an engineer. So we went out and bought a larger home. And before we got moved into that home, he had a drink again, you know. And as we know, alcoholism progresses and it progresses whether you're drinking or not. And he was right back where he was prior to that. And at that time, he was pretty much a daily drinker. I was happy during that time, but as soon as the drinking started again, I too started up where I was and I picked up my worries and my concerns and my resentments and my self-pity and my hurting and my trying to control and if I can just find the one right thing to do, he will quit again. And I kept looking for that. I found out about alcoholism through an article in the Denver Post. He was out drinking one night and I read the paper and came across this article about alcohol, which caught my eye, of course. In this article listed the 20 questions for an alcoholic to take. And I read those 20 questions and I answered them for Glenn, because I could. And I decided this is what his problem is. You know, gave a number to call and the next day I couldn't wait to call that number. Again, I was lucky. That was in February of 1958. And I called this club that was in Denver and there was an alcoholic on the desk and his name was Dan. And I loved that man. He shared with me what alcoholism is and what AA is and what Al-Anon is. And that many times the family members are sick too. And, you know, I gave that the quick yes. I said, I'm sure that's true, but let's, you know, get on to this alcoholism bit. And he did. He told me a great deal about it. And he shared the program with me. And he had quite a lot of sobriety. And he was a spiritual person. And I, I liked what I heard. Possibly I'd have liked it for me if I was thinking of me, but I was thinking of Glenn, you know. And I said to Dan, that certainly sounds like the place where Glenn needs to be if I can get him there. And Dan said to me, oh Helen, you can't get him here. And we'd talk a little more and I would say that again and he would repeat, you can't get him here. But you know, I, that just went right through my head because you got a problem and you know what it is and you know where the solution is. You just follow that, don't you? He said he would mail me a whole lot of literature and he did and I got this the next day. Uh, there was not a lot of Alamon literature in those days. We didn't have our one day at a time. We had some little pamphlets put out from different groups. There was the chapter nine to wives in pamphlet form. There was a lot of information about alcoholics in some of their literature. There was one little pamphlet that had do's and don'ts in it, which I read, you know, real quickly because I wasn't going to need all this because of course Glenn was going to do something about this immediately. Um, a lot of this said, don't try to push your alcoholic that he might be sensitive about this that there is a symptom of denial with this and you know I read all that but my Glenn and I were not like that you know if you got a problem you talk about it and you look at it and that's it and so he came home from work that night and I couldn't wait to give him this literature <laughs> And he took one quick look at this literature and up on the refrigerator it went and he just looked at me and I didn't say anything. I didn't have anything to say. I just was shocked, you know. I called Dan again the next day and told him this and he said, you didn't read what it said in that literature. And I realized that was true. 
He shared with me again about the Allen family groups. They had four little children at that time. And they had one Allen group that met on Tuesday night. And I said, I can't, can't leave my little kids right now. Glenn is an active alcoholic and I can't leave them. So he said, well, you, you call us back and, and his, I had talked to his wife, Mabel, by that time. She was an Al-Anon. And he said, you just keep calling us and keep in touch with us and we'll pray for you. And he shared the program with me. And I was to call him many times in the next year. And they shared with me and I shared with them. And I thought I was on the program. You know, that was 1957. I could talk about those steps, you know. You don't have to work those steps to talk about those steps. You can say beautiful things about them and not be working them. Because, you know, I, I did that, but when I hung up the phone and went away, it's, are you living them, you know? And I wasn't. You can't do that without a group, I don't believe. I couldn't do that without a group. Dan kept saying to me, you're going to have to let go and let God. You're not going to get Glenn here. There isn't anything you can do. And I just could not accept that. I thought it was my obligation to get this family straightened out. You know, we're going to hell in a handbasket here. And there's somebody saying, nothing, do nothing. Just take care of you. And you know, for far as I can see, I'm fine. If he quits drinking, you know, fine, no problem. One day he said to me, Helen, if you ever think you're going to help Glenn, you just as well throw in the sponge. And those words got it to me, that there probably wasn't anything I could do and I was ready to accept it. He had talked to me about let go and let God. Again, I didn't have a group, you see. So I let go and let God, but I did it in a negative way. It's a very positive thing to do to me today, but I let go God. And I went through what I consider a period of apathy where I did not pay a whole lot of attention to what he was doing. You know, if I can't do anything about what he's doing, I'll let him come, I'll let him go, and... and I will just exist. And that's what I did. And that's not living, you know. That's just existing. Waiting. Waiting. And Alan certainly offers us the way to do something besides wait. Certainly offers us the way. I didn't even call Dan. I had talked to my minister about this problem. My Glenn was elected to the board of our church. And little moralistic Helen, you know, I had to call, now I would have to call the minister and tell him, you know. You see, where I was, I gave lip service to the fact that it is a disease. Only lip service. So I called my minister and told him that. And he said, well, you know, that that really doesn't concern me all that much. You know, he he treated it as a disease from the very beginning. My minister did, and I, I did not. That minister was very helpful to me a lot of times and helped me get to Al-Anon, finally. I called Dan again after all this period of time. He wondered where I'd been, and I told him, and he said, well, Mabel wants to talk with you, and so she talked with me, and they were starting a morning group. And I could go. My kids were in school. That's the words they said to me. Do you think I wanted to go, you know? I didn't say good, wonderful. Why should I go to meetings when it is this other one that is doing the drinking, you know? He's got to get to AA. Well, Mabel made it pretty firm that um, if you don't go, you just don't need to call us anymore. And we do that sometimes, and I'm ever so grateful they did that with me. 
I was going to go to that meeting because I, I wanted to talk to them some more, and I went right when I would get there when it started, and I was going to leave the very minute that it was over. And then I could go back and say, I went to the meeting, and, you know, there is nothing there for me. I was a religious person. Therefore, when they talked to me about spiritual, you know, I got that. I was raised in a religious home. No problem with that. I was a religious person, but I was not a spiritual person. But I didn't know that. Went to that meeting, and they were talking about the 11th step. And that's my favorite step today. And I heard some things that I thought I probably could use. And then they read the definition of a mature person. And I heard some things there that probably, you know, I, I kind of thought I could remember one about hurt feelings, and goodness, my feelings were hurt all the time. And they read something about your feelings didn't have to be hurt unless you wanted them to. And I thought, there, you know, there's something in that for me. And then they read just for today. And they visited on the way to that meeting, I resolved to myself that I'm not going to tell those people anything about my Glen. You know, this is probably going to be a thing where they just all go and talk, you know, and I'm not going to tell them anything about Glen. I was the kind that kept it all stuffed down here and pretended that everything was fine. They didn't ask anything about my Glen. <laughs> They didn't even talk about their alcoholics. They talked about the 11th step and about the definitions of a mature person. And I felt the warmth and I felt the love. And when I left there, I still left pretty rapidly, but I thought I'll probably go back. Well, when it got getting close to the next Thursday I could hardly wait for Thursday you know I'd had one hour where I really felt pretty serene and comfortable in that meeting couldn't do much with it beyond that but that was one hour and so I went back and I never missed a Thursday morning after that no matter whether it was snowing or hailing or sleeting or whatever, every Thursday morning I went to that meeting and I read and I tried to change myself. I was forever on the first step, I think. It took me a long time. I'd worked at it. I'd make a little progress. I would think I was letting go. I was admitting that I was powerless. And I mean way down here. I don't mean just up here. I mean way down here so that my reactions were, you know, it is a disease. But I would stumble every once in a while. Some crisis would come up and I have to say crisis to me because I realize that what's a crisis to us is not always a crisis to the alcoholic. Then I would slip back and I'd have to try it again. And that let go and let God. I just struggled with that. I couldn't see how, if you still loved somebody, that it could possibly be right to let go and let this thing happen. Now I remember I asked, <coughs> excuse me, when one of the old timers in our group and I'm grateful for those old-timers because they, they had the depth that I needed. Their husbands were all safely in the program. And that was another reason I was skeptical. You know, I can see how this can work for them and how they want to come to these meetings and talk about these things, you know. But mine is not in the program, and I'm not sure they've got the right path for me. So I talked to her about this thing of love. And she sent me a little book, The Greatest Thing in the World, by Henry Drummond. Like I say, we didn't have all the online literature we do today, so we had to do with other things. And I read through that, and I read things. I'd known these all my life, but I hadn't practiced them, you see. And that's what makes all the difference, whether you practice it or not.
And it said in there, love is not selfish. Love is not puffed up or proud or seeketh not its own. Love is generous and love is kind. And love does not seek to control. And there's that word control. You know, dealings, we haven't talked a lot about control. We do today, but we hadn't at that time. And I thought, I do believe that's what I'm doing. I am trying to control him. And his free will was given him by God. And I'm in here trying to control him. And in addition to that, as I read the literature, I saw that I was giving orders to God. I hadn't realized that till I read that in one of those old books. You know, it says just report for duty. And I was telling God what to do and when. I talked with my sponsor about the let go and let God and thought I had it where it needed to be. And we've got a slogan today that says it all, and that's release with love. And that's where I got to, you know. You can separate the person from the alcoholism, and you can love the person, and let the alcoholism be. Don't get in there, in that bag with that, but love the person. So that was a big step for me. Another thing that helped me with that let go and that God, and we don't like to talk about it a lot, but I needed to know it, and maybe there's somebody here today that needs to know it, that helped me let go of that is, everybody doesn't recover from alcoholism. You know, this is not just some nice little thing that if they straighten up, and surely they will, and if I have faith in him, he will. You know, it is a disease, and just like all diseases, everybody doesn't recover. But there is always hope, and that's what they taught me in Al-Anon. They gave me that hope. They gave me hope, but not positive assurance. And what that did for me was say, you know, hey, we talk about just for today. This is my life today, right now. And I'd better get at living it as best I can with these 12 steps they've given me to live by. And quit worrying about whether he's going to be drinking or not. Quit being obsessed with his alcoholism. I was able to do that through prayer. I was going to a group. I could do that now through some telephone calls. I was able to work this program and let go of that. Took a long time and a lot of meetings to do that. But it became possible for me. Soon we had people coming to our meetings who also had husbands who were still drinking. And there were some of those who were older and felt like they had nowhere else to go and they had to stay. Now I didn't evaluate whether that was true or whether they were being a martyr or what they were. I did not get into that at all. But I just looked at that and realizing that everybody doesn't get well from alcoholism, I decided, you know, I don't believe that I need to let myself get to that place if that's really where they are. My kids were all in school. And so I went back to school. Not with the idea that, that I'm going to go to work, that I'm going to get a divorce. Not with any idea except I'm going back to school now. It would be good for my mind, give me something to think about. And it is always good to improve yourself, and so that's what I did. At the time I finished those courses, my alcoholic did not get better when I went to Al-Anon. He got worse. It's a progressive disease. So when I got through my school, I went to work. 
I was pretty frightened about that, but again, I took my higher power with me. And I got a job, but I know it's the one I was supposed to have because I stayed there 19 years. And they were wonderful people. And we were just like a little family. There were four equal owners, and then there were a couple other employees, and, and there was me. And when summer came, you know, I still had these children that were school age. And I talked to them about that. I said, you know, I'd really like to quit for the summer. And they thought about that and they said, what if we let you hire a college girl or a high school girl to come in and you train her for the summertime and you come in every morning and get things rolling and then you go home at noon to be with your kids. And they let me do that all the years until my kids graduated from school, till the last one graduated. There was a time, I suppose I had been in the program maybe eight or ten years, when Glenn was sent out of town to Georgia on an engineering job. And they would fly him home from time to time. And one time he came home and he said, You know, honey, it is so pretty down there. You just would love it. Why don't you take your vacation and come down there? And I said, Well, I'll think about it. And he left, you know, and I thought... It is so nice here, without his drinking and coming in at all hours. Why in the world would I want to go down there, where he's probably drinking and living it up, you know. But I have a conscience, and so I thought about it. And I felt like I ought to go, and part of me wanted to go, and part of me didn't. And I prayed about it, and we have... terrific capacity for making things complicated. <laughs> you know, they, it finally came to me the airplanes fly both ways and I had come to realize that I didn't have to be around him when he was drunk and if I didn't want to. And if I went down there and he was drunk, you know, I could get on the airplane and come back. Well, he didn't drink. We had a beautiful vacation and I'm ever so grateful I went. We went down to Daytona, we did a lot of fun things, and that was just the beginning of a lot of vacations. And he didn't drink when we did these things. And I don't know the why of that. He just didn't. Our daughter got married and went to Kodiak, Alaska, and we flew up there to see her. We still had one boy at home, and we took him with us. During the years the kids were in grade school, my social activities were hardly anything. Hardly anything. I had bluebirds for my social activities. I taught Sunday school. I did things like that that involved the family, those kids. But now they were grown and so we could take some vacations and we did that many times. And I had a good time. I had learned to live in now. Now and on taught me that, you know. He may have been drunk yesterday, but that doesn't have to affect today. And I could not have done that before Al-Anon. I don't know about you, but if he was drunk for two days and decided on Sunday to take me for a nice ride in the mountains, do you think I had a good time? I would not let myself, you know. How could he dare to think that he could help me enjoy something after that? After Al-Anon, I could do that. I could let go of all that and live in the now. I'm going to skip along here. I better look at my watch. Oh, my. Um, We're going to go quickly all the way up to 1976. One day, this was the 4th of July weekend. In Glenn's story, he would say, I was a red-blooded American boy, and I was a pilot in World War II, and I was going to help my country celebrate the 4th of July. At the end, I, I don't have to fill in what happened. I don't know, because I wasn't with him, you know. It, and let me say this, if there are some of you who do not 
have your spouse there. You know, if you are watching for the crisis that's going to get in there or the big catastrophe that's going to happen that's going to get in there. I saw nothing different about that drunk Glenn had that weekend than a lot of others. wasn't nearly as bad as far as I could see. But it's something that happens inside of them. And you alcoholics know that. And when I came home from work on that day after the 4th, he came to me and he said, Helen, I think I'm going to seek medical help for my problem. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I could hardly believe it. But I didn't act too surprised, you know. Uh, I have to tell you, too, that I don't know if you get these spot announcements here, but when he would tell his story, he would say, I laid there in that den all day watching television, and it seemed to me that every 15 minutes there was a commercial that said, Do you have a problem with alcohol? <laughs> And he said, I, I finally had the answer, I sure as hell do. He had been in and out of AA, you know, during these years, but it never lasted. I am a born optimist, and I know that, because every time he went back, you know, about the time he went to his second meeting, he's going to make it this time. When he went through treatment... I think that was I think that was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. in Al-Anon. I'm sorry, but I'll get it here. <laughs> and I was free of those resentments, and I could watch him, and I could enjoy and appreciate what I was seeing, and it was a miracle. every night I was still working and I went down there every night and it just seemed to me that what I was seeing was a life that had been closed up like this and day by day it opened and it opened until it was like this After I saw this the first week, my children are all grown by now, right? And they're all married, and I've got six grandchildren. And I went home and told these kids, you know, what, what was happening with Glenn. But, you know, they know that Mom is always the optimist, and they were rolling their eyes about, you know, gosh, can she, can she hurt like that again? But they went to see him, and they saw. They saw. He never had another drink after that. He knew, because he had been in and out of AA, that that was only a bridge to AA. And he went immediately to AA. He got active in service. I was in service. We went to open AA meetings. I went to my closed down on meeting. He went to his closed meetings. We went to assemblies. We went to conventions. We did all those fun things you do. And it is fun. And so you see by now I have built two bridges. 
I built one bridge to freedom that took me to freedom where I could be happy, joyous, and free during the years of his active alcoholism. And let me say here, lest I'm painting a picture of all the serenity during those active years, you know, that that is not true. That is not true. I got angry. Active alcoholics do some little things that tend to make you angry. <laughs> but I was aware of a program that worked. I did not get in that bottomless pit of self-pity anymore. I did not hang on to resentment. I did not try to manipulate him with my feelings. And so I had a bridge to freedom and I was happy, joyous, and free. We had plenty of money. I had a good program. The kids were doing well. We could vacation. And it got to the place where when he became a periodic as the years went by and why that was, I have no idea. Whether my Alanon had to do with that, whether his going to AA occasionally did, or if that just happened, you know, I, I have no idea. But anyway, then I built the bridge to freedom when he was in the program. And I'm going to tell you that didn't take me any time at all. There are little adjustments, but, you know, and, and I have to say that's for me. Because I've gone to enough meetings to know that's not true for everybody. But for me, and for Glenn, we, we just did not have that many problems. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. And I had been happy, joyous, and free before, but now there was a little more lilt in that happy, joyous, and free. Very, very beautiful, happy time. And I was grateful. I, we took some vacations again when he was sober, and then we took some cruises, and he loved those. And we had glorious, glorious times. I remember once, and it doesn't make any difference how many years you've got in the program. I'm not going to say it doesn't make any difference. It does. <laughs> you know, I, it's easier for me to work the program today than it was when I was in one year by a long shot. But that doesn't mean I'm going to do it better every hour of every day than somebody that's in one year. We went to the Bahamas on a vacation and I got sick which I hardly ever am, I have very good health, had a pain in the back that just would not go away, and I thought I'll get back to the hotel and we'll rub it with Ben Gay. You know, one of my defects of character, and I've corrected this a little bit, is that I think I am indestructible. Nothing is ever going to happen to me. I know now that it is. Anyway, my back ached and I, I couldn't sit and I couldn't stand and I couldn't lay and I couldn't be and I'm not that kind of a person normally. And Glenn went to the hotel to get a doctor for me and they said the doctor's on the other side of the island doing surgery. And so he came back and I was just absolutely out of my mind with this pain. And he had been doing everything he could and so he sat down on the side of the bed with his head down and his shoulders down looking completely hopeless and helpless and that's when God helps us most isn't it and he said to me to me who had had these 12 steps long these many years and the serenity prayer and the prayer of surrender from the big book why don't you say a prayer Helen my Glenn said that to me I hadn't thought of those 12 steps while I'd been hurting like this. I hadn't thought of saying, God grant me the serenity. I hadn't thought of surrendering. I hadn't thought about that line that says, abandon yourself to God. I hadn't even thought about it till Glenn said that to me. And I did that. And I went to sleep. 
And I woke up in the middle of the night with a little bit of pain again. And I surrendered again. Abandon yourself to God. I, did, I had done that many times mentally. I had never done that physically. I don't know what was the matter with me. We went to the doctor the next morning. That's kind of scary because that's not your, your good old American doctor. Well, he didn't know what was the matter with me. He <laughs> gave me some codeine. <laughs> for the pain, you know, and I took one of those and then thought I ought to keep taking it, you know, and I said, I don't want that stuff, you know. You're, you're just out of it. You're just out of it. I don't know what was the matter with me. I've never had a problem since. But I know that that night when I surrendered and abandoned myself to God, all my fears and all of everything, it, it went away. And it does that mentally. Glenn and I talked at a convention in Colorado. And that's another little prayer. That when I first came into Al-Anon and when I was, was at this place where we all get, where, you know, if I can just tell all those people, they're all going to come. And I thought, you know, if Glenn and I could just, if he could get in the program. See, I was just in the program, feeling this flesh, and I'm projecting, of course, he's going to be here. And when he gets here, you know, we can carry the message together. And I prayed about that. And I wasn't done all that much in those days. You know, couples did not do all that much sharing. But I prayed about that. And when Glenn got out of treatment, he hadn't been out two months till the treatment center was using AA and Al-Anon couples to come down there and chair meetings for the alcoholics in treatment. And he came home to me and said, Helen, I've signed you and I up to do that for next month. You and I are going to go down there and share. And I remembered that little prayer I'd said so many years before. We shared at a convention. We shared in groups. We, ta we gave talks in groups. And we grew quite a bit from that. Sometimes there were things that were said as we shared together that were hurtful. Sometimes I could tell that something I had said was bothering him. But you know, I, I worked that 10th step. I worked that 10th step, that 11th step, and that 12th step. And if I see something that I might have said that's bothering him that I don't know what it was, I would ask him on the way home, you know. Did something I say bother you? And he would share with me. You know, and, and that's this program. The openness, the communication, the just being yourself, the being honest. year ago.
I'm sorry, but I know I need to do this. I know I need to tell this story. I haven't told my story since he died before. He died sober, and I was there, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for those beautiful five years we had. very grateful for Alan <clears throat> for all those years before he got to the program because don't you see I could be feeling a world of guilt for carrying all that resentment and who knows what I would have done with it all those years I'm very very grateful that I had Alan on during those years don't misunderstand me. I got angry at him sometimes. <coughs> but we're not perfect. <coughs> I felt resentment and I felt self-pity. But I knew a better way. And I used it. I used this program. I have to use this program. It's, it's how I live. It's the way I live. I couldn't give it up now. And so now I'm building a third bridge. Because this is a different way of life. I hope I can tell you now how much love my Alanons and I call them mine because they were them and the alcoholics gave me when I needed them you spend so many years in this program trying to give it away and in a matter of a few weeks you have got more back than you could ever give away ever they were there with their love. They were there with their caring and their hugs. I was reduced once again to an empty vessel. I had nothing to give. Not right then. And they gave to me. And little by little, I began to get a little bit of serenity and this program helped me get it. You know, when those never-agains come, you don't think about the never-agains. You think about right now. God, get me through right now. That's all that matters. That's all life is made up of, is the right now. There's hurt. You can see that. There's pain. And I read a little thing that I hope... I'm a reader. And I read a little thing that helped me with this. It's in Kubler-Ross's The Final Stage of, of Growth. And it says... That the hurt and pain of losing a spouse is intense, and it is. If any of you out there have walked that road, you know it is intense. But that is only because you've been given the gift of love. It's only because you had the gift of love for someone else that you feel this hurt and pain. So then being grateful for the love 
somehow you will accept and be grateful for the pain. And that's true. I'm going to close now because I think I've been here a little long and I don't have a whole lot more to tell you. I've, I've had a reasonable year, let me say that, you know. I and my God and my Haunan program we're going to go on I've, I've done some things and I, I don't want to, to leave you with this, you know, poor thing look like I must look right now and I don't see myself that way, okay? I've been able to do some fun things in this last year that have just come to me out of the blue. Glenn and I traveled a lot and I didn't think I could ever travel again. And I was at the beauty shop having my hair fixed one day and my hairdresser says, I have a friend that has some friends in London and we could stay with them. Would you like to go? And I got to go to London at the time of the prince's wedding, no less. And I stayed on the street all night and I've never done that in my life. <laughs> and I could enjoy I could enjoy that. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves if we ask him. And it's when we're most hopeless and helpless that he helps us the most. And I really believe that. Because it's happened to me. It's happened to me. I went to Washington, D.C. a month ago. I did that alone because I need to feel comfortable with being alone. I need to accept that and move out there and live. You know, that's a slogan. Live and not live. I worked that one backwards too. You know, I concentrated on the let live and how surprised I was when I found out if I let live, I have time to live. I have time to live. And that's what I'm going to do. That's what life is for. It's a blessing. It's a gift. I was given the gift of life today. And so I'm, I'm going to be all right. It is said that if you have the help of a master weaver, and I have, you see, it's possible for those dark threads of your life to be woven in with the bright threads so that it is a more beautiful tapestry than you'd have otherwise. And I believe that. Part of that's been shown to me, you see. Twenty-four years ago, I prayed, God, take this alcoholism away. Don't give it to me. Take it away. And he didn't. And the thing that I thought was the curse of my life has brought me here to all of you. One of the most rewarding things I do is my Al-Anon work today. And so we don't always know when adversity and difficulty and all those things, only God can help us turn those around. I believe that. As I was flying here in the airplane, out the window and I thought about the little story about Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And I haven't thought about that beautiful little story for a long time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not up there flying that free yet. But I've tried to tell you a little bit of this last year so you know that I'm getting there. Your bridge to freedom has, has been a good theme for me because I'm building my third bridge.
You've helped me with it a whole lot this week. Thank you.